Hello, and welcome to episode number 367, the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, expanding our world. Subscribe on YouTube if you haven't, Spotify, wherever it might be. Uh, make the show become great, which it is. Now, on this one here, we have a <laughs> right. We have a <laughs> returning guest. It is okay, and we have support too. Long live that. It's a big deal. We as humans. Returning from episode two seventy one to almost a hundred episodes later, three sixty seven, Professor and or Doctor Corey Clark on the show joins us. Corey, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Very glad to have you on. Boom. We are smooth in the moment. Now, in the past time we talked, we talked about free will bias and punishment, and that was a great discussion, actually. And now we'll be discussing some different topics. But before we get into that, you have a background of many different institutions currently somewhere. <laughs> but before there, you were at uh, UC Irvine and got your PhD there in social and personality psychology and quantitative methods. I recently interviewed someone there in person, which was wonderful. Long live institutions and actually being there, you feel something when you're there versus um, it can be good also from distance too. Tell us about uh, that time and then we'll get to your uh, current time. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I bounced around a lot between then and now. Um, but yeah, UC Irvine, I, I started grad school before I really had a sense of what what I wanted to do and what my research interests were. So I think my advisor was probably really fundamental to shaping what I ended up studying, which worked out well because I really like what I'm doing now. Um, but my advisor, Pete Ditto, he was a moral and political psychologist. Um, I, I started working with him on the topics of morality, and that's how I got into um, the free will belief stuff and how we morally judge other people and how we uh, how our desires to punish other people influence how we perceive human behavior. Um, so that was very much in the moral realm. I remember early on, I think it was my first or second year, um, Pete was like, oh, I want one of my grad students to be like my political psychology person. Do you want to be that person? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> I want nothing to do with that. Um, but <laughs> not me. Over time, I, I have gotten more interested in um, political psychology, but also in um, how politics influences science in particular um, and how the uh, ideologies of scholars influence what they choose to study and publish and how that, you know, kind of eventually downstream can impact perceived scientific consensus about, you know, supposedly objective empirical facts. Um, so I think Pete probably sent me down that trajectory and then um, – uh, I guess ever since then, I've been focused a little bit more on, you know, what can we do to help de-bias science and help scientists uh, commit themselves to the pursuit of truth um, rather than pursuing particular social agendas. Long live the pursuit of truth. <laughs> I <hope> few, so. <laughs> right? I know quite a few individuals who, well, one person said that's like a basis for their whole uh, existence or all that they do. So that's good to find hmm. The truth that exists. A lot of people are working on it. I hope they're successful. <laughs> right. We can only, we can only hope. And then <laughs> afterward, from following up from that, you are currently at the University of Pennsylvania, shortens to UPenn in words. And the question on that is, what are you currently doing there? And also, what is the adversarial collaboration project? Yeah. So I I've been at 
UPenn for, I think, a little over two years. Um, I've been in the School of Arts and Sciences, but just recently I'm now also cross-appointed in management at the Wharton School. Um, and the big thing I'm doing there is I'm working with um, Phil Tetlock on the Adversarial Collaboration Project. I'm the executive director for this research initiative. And essentially what we're trying to do is convince scholars that when they have empirical disagreements with other scholars, rather than taking the traditional route, which is, you know, publicly criticizing their work, writing commentaries that often devolve into these really nasty <laughs> exchanges where they start making moral accusations toward each other um, and, you know, creating a research agenda designed to like fight back against another scholar. Instead, what they should do is work together, uh, have a meeting, discuss the disagreement and figure out what empirical tests they could run that they both agree would be fair tests um, that could help adjudicate their competing hypotheses. So uh, this this idea, well, not the idea, people have been doing adversarial collaborations for at least a couple dozen years, a few dozen years. Um, but Danny Kahneman coined the term adversarial collaboration and Phil and I are trying to make it normal and expected and make people want to do them and see the benefit of them. Um, and we're hoping that it not only could help advance science better, faster, but it also can make the political climate in science more cooperative and less combative. Um, and it's been going very well so far. We have a lot of projects ongoing and we have several dozen scholars participating in them, which is great because up until now, I think only to, to my granted, there, I'm sure there are ones that I don't know of, but of the ones I know of, I think there have only been 17 ever uh, conducted, um, at least in the traditional sense of scholars getting together, articulating competing hypotheses, and then agreeing to conduct um, new studies together. So, and actually successfully doing it. <laughs> um, so, so now I think it's probably the case that I've participated in more adversarial collaborations than, than any other scholar. Uh, and I hope to do a lot more. <laughs> Can you give us all an example of an adversarial collaboration, what it looks like in total? Sure. Um, so I'll do maybe a well, none of them are really that straightforward. Yeah, here's one that's maybe kind of straightforward. So we have one on the rigidity of the right, which is the idea that political political conservatives are generally more cognitively rigid than um, political liberals. So we have a team of scholars, some who've published that conservatives are particularly rigid, some who've published that liberals and conservatives are roughly similarly rigid some that have said it's not political uh, it's not liberals and conservatives it's extremists on both sides that are particularly rigid and some that say it varies completely based on the topic conservatives are more rigid on some things and liberals on others um on whole it, it almost doesn't even make sense to say who's more rigid on whole because it just depends on the context um and so we've We've conducted, we just finished our second study and I haven't seen the data yet. I'll see those in like a week, I think. Um, actually, maybe tomorrow. No, I don't know. Maybe in a few days. <laughs> soon. Soon I'll see the results. Um, but in our first study, well, what we first did is we had to have 
we went through every measure of rigidity that we knew of in the published literature, and it was something like, I don't even know, maybe 40 or so. And then everyone on the team went through and said whether they think it's a fair measure of rigidity. So, for example, some measures of rigidity are like personality scales. Um, and the problem with these scales is they're written by psychology professors. So sometimes they assert, like they accidentally insert their sort of political values into the survey. So um, like looking at a measure of authoritarianism, you might say something like, we should defer to our religious authorities or something, but you're specifically implying religious authorities. And that's something conservatives would be more likely to agree with because conservatives are more religious. So we had everyone go through and say what they thought was wrong with all of these measures of rigidity. And the only one everyone agreed to was belief updating in response to new evidence. So our measure of rigidity is how much do people update their beliefs when they're confronted with new evidence? In our first study, um, we pre-tested a bunch of materials that were uh, similarly balanced on the left and right in terms of um, whether people believe them to be true already or false, and we tried to balance the content. So, for example, um, um, we had one like Donald Trump is uniquely simple-minded simple versus Biden is uniquely simple-minded. Both of those conclusions have been supported by prior research, and conservatives should be more motivated to deny that Trump is and um, liberals more that Biden is. Uh, and we found a set of results that was amazingly <laughs> like a win-win-win <laughs> kind of. Um, so we found that um, liberals and conservatives were like similarly likely to update their beliefs sort of supporting the symmetry idea that they are similarly rigid. Um, we also found that extremists are more rigid than more moderate partisans. But then we also found a steeper slope on the right than the left, indicating that right-wing extremists are more rigid than left-wing extremists, and right-wing and left-wing extremists are more rigid than more moderate people on the left and right. But on average, people on the left and right are similarly rigid. So it was like a very amazing situation where everyone came uh, – uh, everyone, I guess, lost a little, but everyone also won a little bit. Um, and I'm thinking that's going to be a fairly common outcome that everyone's going to be a little bit right and maybe also a little bit wrong. Um, but then we can discover this more nuanced truth uh, rather than two people making contradictory claims against one another for decades. That's true. Now, does that come out? Does that make a, a graph that's like uh, has plateaus yeah, and like such representing? Like this. Like that? <laughs> this is the graph. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's like a representation wait, of the individual. This is like... the actual. <laughs> <laughs> this is a representation of the actual discrepancy here, which would not be the thing that would be the default. The default would just be, oh, you know, uh, complete uh, deviation. But the graph represents, oh, there's more linkage than you would imagine. That's cool. So mm -hmm. That's an example. And what why would one do an adversarial collaboration study in the first place? What would be the alternative regular way to do it? Well, the regular way to do it is, um, you know, you team up with a bunch of, well, you could do a paper on your own, but a lot of people work, uh, collaborate. I, I prefer to work in groups. It's more fun. Um, 
you team up with other scholars um, that have the exact same hypothesis as you, and they want and expect to find the exact same thing, and you go into the research project not looking to test is X or Y true, but rather to prove X is true. Um, and I've been part of tons of projects like this where everyone on the team is desperate for that P less than 0.05. <laughs> and when the results come back, it's not, oh, we learned this. It's, oh, it worked because you're trying to prove something. And so you're like, look, our study worked. It's proving X. And that's what we wanted to prove. Um, so with adversarial collaborations, instead of working to prove X, you ask, is X true or not? One person wants it to be true and the other one doesn't want to be true. Now, what happens when everyone wants the same thing to be true is everyone on the team works to shape the methods in the way that's most likely to create the result you want. Um, in an adversarial collaboration, you can't do that because each person on different sides wants a different result. And so both sides are motivated to shape the methods in their own favor. And both sides won't let the other side rig the methods in their favor. So they have to agree on a test that both people are like, okay, this is a sincere, unbiased test of these competing hypotheses. Um, I would say there are two reasons, I think. I think there are two reasons, eh, maybe three two or three reasons people don't want to do them. One is they don't want to be proven wrong and look stupid. Um, that's natural. <laughs> Another is I think they're afraid of the potential conflict, um, which is fair enough. Like I've, uh, so far, most of the ones I've been on have been very productive and harmonious and it's been a delightful surprise to see how well they've been going. But once in a while, there's a little, <laughs> it's a little awkward. Um, and I imagine it can get very, in fact, I know it can get very awkward because I am aware of adversarial collaborations that have fully failed uh, and where the people came out hating each other probably even more than they did when they started. Um, and then the other thing is that they do take more time because rather than having on a traditional collaboration where it's like all gas pedals, it's a gas and a break, you know? So it's it's slower. Um, there are more negotiations and rounds of figuring out methods and pre-testing. And, um, and people don't want to do slow science. They want to do fast science because they just want to publish as many papers as they can as quickly as possible <laughs> uh, so that they can get tenure and win awards and everyone can admire them. Um, so those are reasons not to do one. <laughs> the reason I think I think there are a couple of reasons to do one. One, I think it can prove to other scholars that you're committed to pursuit of truth and not to promoting your research agenda. So I think in the long run, scholars who participate in adversarial collaborations will be viewed as more serious scientists than people who refuse to participate in them. Um, and especially people who refuse to participate in them will look particularly bad, like they do have an agenda promote and really aren't care. They really don't care about the truth. Um, the other reason I think um, people should want to participate in them is wouldn't it be better to catch your own mistake than, than to have someone else do it later? So if you're wrong and you've been publishing something that's wrong for a year or a decade or 30 years, science is going to continue to happen. You're going to die at some point people are going to figure out you were wrong. Whether you figure it out or someone else figures it out, it's going to happen eventually. And why not 
get a publication out of dismantling your own hypothesis rather than let someone else destroy you later. Now, that's that's really only in the worst case scenario where you actually are wrong. Oftentimes, people will be either right or at least partially right. And so I don't think the reputational consequences of being wrong are that likely. I don't think anyone will be catastrophically wrong in an adversarial collaboration. It'll be like, it's moderated by this thing or we see it in this context, but not that context, or the effect size is slightly smaller than I had originally thought. None of those are terrible for your career. But in the absolute worst case scenario that you really are wrong and you like could be devastating your scientific career, uh, I think you're devastating it less <laughs> if you participate in an adversarial collaboration and discover it on your own than if you dig in your heels and say, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And then someone else comes along is like, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think, I think it actually is in scientists' best interest to try to figure out if their preferred hypotheses really are correct, because at least in the long run, in the short term, you might get all kinds of benefits and publications from your faulty science. But I think most scientists, they want to withstand the test of time. They don't want to just be celebrities for a couple of decades and then be considered phonies from there on out. There are many valid points here. That's true. I noticed the short-term versus long-term nature of it. And one thing that came to my mind is that the other regular way would be more outcome dependent, which in general in life, being outcome dependent is always a poorer way to go than uh, going with reality, if you will, because when you're outcome dependent, it has to work or you're disappointed. It's not really, here's reality and you have to be like this okay, this path, oh, I saw this thing on my path. Okay, that worked out. You're, you're limited in some context. And and when people connect, being outcome dependent is always uh, leads to people being sad and connecting with other people or uh, not getting to their goal and getting uh, depressed early on for no reason. So I noticed that part. Would you say outcome independence is an element of adversarial collaborations. Yeah. And it's something that I've tried to do in even my non-adversarial research as well is I, whenever possible, I try to ask research questions where both the yes and the no are informative to me and publishable because I'm, I'm doing a test that tells me something, whether I get P less than 0.05 or not, rather than this test only tells me something if I get P less than 0.05. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time and I consider the study a failure and then I file drawer it because I can't publish it anyway. Um, so, for example, I have a paper under review on harm hypervigilance. Um, and this is what we find is people have a tendency to overestimate harmful behavioral reactions to scientific findings and underestimate all helpful ones. And we did this fairly straightforwardly in two studies. We asked people, um, um, uh, do you support these actions, yes or no, in response to these scientific findings? And then we asked another group of people to predict the percentage of people who support those findings. And reviewers pointed out that people might not report their behavioral reactions honestly because they might be trying to portray themselves more in a more positive light than reality. Or the people who are predicting might exaggerate other people's harmful behaviors, even though they don't believe that they really would do those things um, as a kind of like moral strategy for stopping people from doing bad things. And so 
we ran a third study where we incentivized people to give honest responses. Um, and I thought, well, this will tell me something because if I incentivize people to give honest responses and I still find the effect that suggests people really do have a systematic bias toward overestimating harm. Um, but if it goes away when I incentivize people, that means one of those other two things is happening. It means either people are presenting themselves in an overly positive way or people are motivatedly predicting that other people are worse than they are, even they don't, even though they don't sincerely believe that they are. Um, and so I would get information whether I got P less than 0.05 or not. We did find that the incentives do absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> so um, people do have a bias toward exaggerating harms, <laughs> um, which I guess is like more of a victory. But I thought, however the study turns out, I'm going to learn something um, and I can still turn it into a, a useful package of studies that will tell people something about human behavior. Two things come to mind. One, I like the bigger picture nature of it because... Yeah, back to what I was saying earlier, like reality is a bigger picture. And then uh, you get things from both ends if you're looking at it and your your question is able to entail all that can be included versus a small trajectory. And then the other item is it relates to what you just described. I've always seen that we are built for a heightened response to negative items. I don't know if it's three times, five times, some, some amount larger. <laughs> and then positive items you would have to have so many or they have to be so substantial to have the same ping effect on our mind because I'm guessing evolutionarily the positive items were okay, but you kept going versus the negative items might be the end of your food or starvation or some sort of terrible happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's based on error management theory. I think the easiest example is just, I mean, everyone's probably had the, oh, Maybe a better experience is everyone's been in their their house like at night, maybe you're alone and you hear something down the hall and it's probably just like normal house sounds, but you start panicking and your heart starts beating really fast and you like grab a, like some kind, whatever weapon you have nearby you. <laughs> I have no weapons. I don't know what I'd use my cell phone cord as a garrote. <laughs> um, but you know, you go in search of the harm, even though you like part of you knows there's probably no intruder there, but your 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 brain still tells you there's an intruder there. Like go do something. Um, so people have a tendency to overestimate danger because evolutionarily, if you did not react to potential danger, you could die, and that's the end of it for you. Whereas it's not particularly costly to be vigilant and go out and look for danger and make sure that you're okay. You know, like quickening your step. Like if you're walking through the woods at night, isn't that costly, but not getting away from a predator is very costly. So people should be systematically biased toward concluding there's more danger in the world than there really is on average anyway. Right. Do you think of this point when you're on internet spaces where something that has a hefty uh, pinging nature of negativity or... Uh, harshness is 10 hundred times more mentioned by many people versus relatively calm, positive items mm. fall by the wayside. 
Yeah, I think work by, I think it's Bill Brady. I know Von, Von Hippel, not Von Hippel, um, Van Babel, <laughs> Jay Van Babel and some of his um, collaborators have looked at this and you see that um, negative content and like moral, morally negative content in particular is particularly likely to spread around on social media. Um, so and it, it spreads to more people faster and it reaches more people. So people kind of have this uh, hyper attention towards bad things and morally bad things, I think, because we are motivated to avoid harm. And so we have to be really vigilant about detecting it in the first place. And this leads people to overestimate um, harms that are likely to happen in more, you know, ambiguous situations. Mm -hmm. I always look at social spaces and what people are saying and or sharing. And I try to see if I can take something about society from, from that in a way. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool feature. Do you, in doing bigger picture studies, does it separate anyway from other science? What's, what kind, do you get any sort of pushback or difficulty because science is already of a methodical time-based nature, but then if you're doing it in, even in more detail than what I would call the average, um, what kind of difficulty comes with that? Is there any difficulty that comes with that? Do you mean are like people annoyed that I want them to do adversarial collaborations? <laughs> um, maybe what would it lead to? I'm not sure. Maybe there might not be. If there's any sort of uh, challenge to adding an extra layer of detail that others are not doing by default. Oh, you mean like, is it like harder to get studies done when you're being more detailed? That'd be kind of part of it, yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, the, the, when you're doing an adversarial collaboration, everything is so meticulous. Like every, even like individual words and individual items are up for debate, you know, when you're figuring things out. Whereas I, I collaborate with my, my friends, Azim Sharif and Jim Everett quite a bit. And when we're working on projects, it's just like, go, go, go. Cause we like know what we want to do and we know what we're looking for. And uh, we all agree on like the proper methods. Um, and so it can happen really quickly. Um, we can knock out, you know, a few studies in a few weeks. Um, whereas with adversarial collaborations, like for example, the rigidity of the right one. And then we have another one on motivated reasoning. Both of those, we presented initial results of study one was it this past year or the year before? It was this it was in February, I think. We presented those in February, and only just now we're getting the results in from study two. Um, so we've been working on the study two for <laughs> like seven months or something, um, which is, I mean, not really, like the data collection takes a while too. But anyway, it took months to decide on new materials, whereas with regular studies, it can take an hour. So yeah, that's a challenge. <laughs> that's cool. I'm always looking at short and long-term nature. Now, a different category you have covered. I looked at a few of your papers, which is wonderful. But uh, it was in the category of victimhood for resources. Uh, can, a, can a victim acquire more resources? And what did you look at in that category? So I'm, I'm, I'm 
I wrote like a little mini literature review on victimhood, um, but I'm only just now starting to conduct my own research on it. Um, and I don't even have results. I don't think we've launched the study yet. But in my review, what I wrote, I covered some recent work that's been done. It's quite interesting. Um, there are kind of two sides to it. One is um, people who signal victimhood to other people, people who tell other people about their struggles and the way the world treats them unfairly and, um, you know, essentially just like advertising to other people that you've had to overcome a lot of um, hardships in your life. People respond to that in very positive ways uh, and negative ways, which I'll get to. But um, they are more likely to give resources to those people, of course, because they're per perceived as being in need. So people will, will depart with their resources to help those people. Um, but the bigger one, I think, or maybe the more consequential one anyway, is that it gives people this kind of moral impunity where other people don't judge them as harshly for their bad behavior. So it licenses these people um, to get away with mistreating others. And I think that's probably even the bigger benefit is if you can convince other people that like you deserve to get revenge or retaliate or behave badly, people will give you a pass. <laughs> um, and what this creates is an incentive for other people to want to claim to others that they're victims. So um, there have been a series of studies that look at this and there are a couple things. One is I think everyone's motivated to signal victimhood from time to time, but some people do it more than other people. And what that research shows is that people who do it more than other people tend to be higher in dark triad traits. So this is um, psychopathy, uh, narcissism, and Machiavellianism, but they're they essentially just mean, or rather together, it's a tendency to have like a high sense of self-importance, feeling, feeling entitled, not caring about other people's feelings, being willing to exploit other people to get ahead oneself. Um, and they see that these people who signal their victimhood are more likely to take advantage of other people and cheat. Um, and, and there's some like cross-context uh, stability in that people who feel like victims, feel like victims across different contexts. They feel mistreated by a lot of different people. Um, and they feel they ruminate over the ways people have mistreated them and they feel justified to like retaliate against other people. So there's a lot of like really, really negative things. So it's, um, it's, it's, a uh, it's an interesting thing because on the one hand, these people are behaving pretty badly in a lot of different ways, but that bad behavior actually is rewarded. Um, and so it only further incentivizes people to continue to behave badly. And one really, uh, I guess one of the more uh, devastating consequences of this process is that when some people signal their victimhood, if I say I'm victimized by you, that motivates you to say that you're victimized by me. Um, and once I feel like I'm a victim of you, I feel like I deserve to retaliate and I deserve to harm you. And then you have justifiable cause to feel victimized by me. And then you think you deserve to retaliate. I'm the bad guy. And it literally can just go on and on. And you see this in intergroup conflicts as well. Like one group thinks the other group 
committed some injustice against them and therefore they get revenge. And now that group feels like they've suffered injustice and it can just perpetuate a conflict where no side will take responsibility for their own contribution to the conflict and both sides continue to feel justified to just keep escalating things and mutually destroy one another. <laughs> um, so it can be a really, really destructive psychological tendency. Um, I'm just now starting to get into some research where I'm looking at what are the contexts in which people detect this strategy for what it is. And that's not to say that every time someone signals victimhood, they're using the strategy. A lot of the time people really are suffering, probably most of the time, uh, and they really need help. Um, but manipulative, manipulative people will also take advantage of the, the possibility of using victimhood to get resources. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at what are the contexts in which people perceive victim signalers as exploitative? Um, and then are there any reputational costs to that? Or when are there reputational costs? For example, if you were to find out that a person signals their victimhood all the time, like they say, every single person I've ever met has been sexist against me, then you're like, probably not every single person you've ever met. And then it's like, maybe it's not them, maybe it's you. Like, you're the common denominator. Um, so I suspect potentially, like, repeat offenses might make people have less sympathy. Um, but that's that's something I'm just getting started on now. So I don't have the answers for you yet. <laughs> that's fair. I think about that sometimes, where a quality of a person, it's like they will play their own game with the other people who play that game. So then maybe those who are signaling victimhood, their most uh, adversarial individuals are other individuals who play victimhood and they're battling mm. back. Whereas the other person who doesn't play at all is just watching like what's, what's going on here. <laughs> it's like their own little yeah. uh, battleground. Yeah. I guess that's better than the, the other people also getting involved and helping fuel the fire. <laughs> I kind of look at it like a yeah fire or some sort of like like a pen, pendulum swing, but yeah. just over here watching it from afar. Huh. That's interesting with the the repeat offenses. Yeah, that is a good signal of I think when that is taking place because first time okay the world may have happened to you in some way uh, where they say like eighty percent of life is what happened what you do and twenty percent is what happens to you. I've noticed in my life. Anything that's happened mm. to me, most of it was me causing to myself in the long term. And once in a while, there's surprises of things, but the earthquakes haven't uh, taken me out as much mm. as I've affected myself over decades. So when I look at it in that proximate sense, then mm. I don't give much weight to... I've never seen random items other than very extreme items that happen very rarely really alter one's existence more than things they do weekly, monthly, daily, those things can, then you have like a chronic uh, diabetes or something from that, hmm. I guess. Hmm. That's I why you got to do regular there. podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Long live regularity in that form. Right. This is a chronic condition. Actually, I should tell people this is a chronic condition. I am speaking and can't help it. That's kind of cool. And then it becomes a part of your... I like that quality that you can alter or impact a part of your being through a regular form. Some people do this in fitness uh, and other mm -hmm. categories and you become that 
it's one of the most interesting things about existing, I would say. <laughs> and then what had motivated the study to look at victimhood? What, was there examples that were given or um, was it a category of interest? What, what caused the interest in that category? Um, in me? Mm-hmm. Or the, to do the research on? Um, really, I, I think I wrote that piece just because I had recently been seeing quite a few interesting studies come out on victimhood that hadn't all been put together. Um, so I think that's why I became interested in it. I don't, I mean, I do think you can see it out in the world. Like anytime you see, not anytime, a lot of the time when you see ongoing interpersonal or intergroup conflict, you can see elements of this with each person or group claiming to have been uh, harmed by the other and this uh, justifies them to behave badly themselves. And then it goes on and on. I've seen this in like uh, my friend's relationships that end up falling apart. <laughs> it's like both per- both people feel like the other person's doing everything wrong. Um, but you can see it in intergroup conflicts in the world as well. So I, I do think it explains a lot. Um, and I also think there's something a little bit I think it's worth reflecting on because I think it's something that everybody does. Um, my favorite example of this is this YouTube video of a baby that's just like wailing and someone's holding the camera, a parent, presumably. I think it, for some reason, I think it's a dad, but maybe it's a mom, but someone's holding a camera and this baby is throwing a temper tantrum, crying, like kicking the ground. And the parent moves out of the frame so the baby can't see the parent. And then the baby stops, gets up, moves back into the parent's vision and starts crying, kicking and screaming again. And I think like this is an example of this victimhood signaling. It's the baby's fine. (laughs) The baby just wants attention and wants sympathy and it wants someone to come take care of it and, uh, you know, give it give it some attention and love. Uh, so it's pretending to be distressed, even though it's not really. It's it's not distressed enough that it the distress continues when the parent can't see it. Um, and I think this just shows that humans have this natural tendency to want to get sympathy and uh, attention and other resources from other people. And one way we can do that is by showing that we're suffering or that we've been harmed or that we deserve sympathy and and uh other people should be giving us resources and taking care of us um and it's it would be a good thing to do it's like a good evolutionary strategy (laughs) because it's a way to get resources without having to do work or um you know having to put yourself you're putting yourself in a little bit of danger actually uh because if you get you get caught then people might um retaliate against you. But so long as you're sly about it, (laughs) it's a pretty good strategy. Um, So I think everyone probably does this. Um, It's just different people doing do it to varying degrees and uh, and different people will be more willing to really use it to take advantage of others, whereas hopefully some people have some kind of limit. (laughs) Not many people are like launching fake GoFundMe pages. Presumably you can go to prison for that. I, I would assume. So right. there's some cost there. <laughs> right. When I think of that category, I give it not too much weight because if I would put victimhood in the brake pedal category versus the gas pedal 
you can only get so much out of life from being like, whoa, whoa, what about uh, versus going for something uh, on the, it's sort of like a defensive maneuver to grab a little bit versus mm -hmm. offensive maneuvers are, you know, a movement towards something, mm -hmm. but there's more risk involved and victimhood doesn't take that risk at all. It's just, I should get a little bit more and it's, it's it, I would call it like a small percentage versus what you can get if you uh, pull or go towards things in life. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's interesting. Cause it's similar to something I think about people who seem to seek to get ahead by taking other people down versus like improving their own situation. So like I see people are such assholes to people on, I'm going to say asshole. <laughs> Yeah. Episode 367, you're saying asshole. We're doing it. <laughs> we're doing it. Um, uh, people are assholes to each other on social media. And I'm like, if you took the time that you spent, quote, tweeting other people and telling everyone how dumb this person is or how bad this person is, like, if you took that time and you invested it in improving whatever it is you're trying to do, maybe you're trying to be a good writer or a mathematician or, you know, a, a runner or whatever. If you invested that time back into yourself, you might help your relative standing more than trying to take other people down. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a very uh, productive strategy, but people do it. So uh, I guess it tells you something. Um, People are getting something out of it. <laughs> Those likes are as, just as good as getting in shape or improving your piano <laughs> playing. <laughs> yeah, the same. One bit. Uh, one book I read said the likes are the lowest uh, bandwidth communication ever because there's video uh, in person, then video, then or in person, um, virtual reality, video, audio, text, and then a like is a one bit communication. It communicates one bit of information. Yeah. Yeah. And people put probably too much importance on it. <laughs> Valid point. When you mentioned that right there, also, when I see, let's say somebody said uh, another, you know, let's say researchers competing somehow, and one was to put down the other in order to somehow build their thing. I always see it when someone comments on another, both as such a small world thing, like that one other person is the whole reality of the planet. And also, <laughs> what a compliment to that other person, because you're basically saying that other person is the whole planet for that for that moment. It's, it's like an indirect yeah. super compliment of sorts. So when people insult me on social media, I should be like, thank you. Thank you for thinking I'm so important. <laughs> They're saying like, if not for her, the world would be so different. It is her. Yeah. <laughs> what what an impact you're having on you know the reality of the world. I think it's a super compliment. It's a good perspective. I can't see it any other way. So if I I've gotten on, I used to make some funny videos on different social platforms, and then when I get a harsh comment, I'd be like, "Sounds great," and I'd make a comment with them, like just joking, not even think, and they'd be like, "Hey, it was great. Thanks for responding." They were just happy because I'm not looking at the words. The words are not anything. The words are actually underneath it. It's like, "Hello, please contact me." Please reach out. Hello. I want to feel better. So <laughs> we can't look too directly at what's actually uh, being typed in a way. Mm. Now, <laughs> these, are, these are important. <laughs> I always look at the interpersonal relations between people. That's a, a category I'm always uh, looking at everywhere I go. Now, a third category I want to look at here is 
motivated free will belief. I recently had an episode on free will. It's uh, specifically just on free will a few weeks back with, with uh, Alfred who? Neal, Alfred oh. Neal of Florida State University, mm-hmm. and he has written uh, quite a bit on free will. And then his recent book, Free Will: An Opinionated Guide, and we talked about Is free it will. Meal or Malay? Oh, I don't know. Challenge of the day. I think I thought it was Malay, but you're probably right. We're going with that. Alfred I could be Neal. wrong. No, no, no. I mean, if you talk to him, I, I, I have met him. It's been a very long time. It sounds cool. Though. Anyway, I will say Malay. <laughs> Alfred, Al, <laughs> right. Al, Al had described um, quite a bit about free will, but we did not uh, cover this, which is motivated free will belief. What does the motivated element add to it? And what have you looked at in that category? Yeah, he actually might disagree with me because I think he's more of like a rash rationalist about these kinds of things. Um, yeah, but what, what I've found in my research, so one thing that's been shown by a lot of different scholars is that when people do something, this is related to what we were talking about before, but the bad, you know, being bigger in people's minds than the good. Um, uh, when other people cause harm or do something bad, they attribute more responsibility to that person, all different kinds of responsibility, more control. The person was more causal. They um, had more capacity to not do the thing. Um, and they've, they've looked at various ways of trying to equate the bad thing and the not bad thing. So, for example, like uh, stealing some amount of money versus donating that amount of money. But also like um, there's these studies by um, Mark – Alec, and I'm not sure if it's Alec or Alecky, so he's not knowing how to pronounce people's names. And I met him too, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Alec or Alecky. We're on the um, same page. <laughs> um, uh, so he had people read about a per- like a person who caused a car accident while they were speeding home, and either either they were speeding home to hide a vial of cocaine or to hide their parents' anniversary gift. And people say the person had more control when more control over causing the car accident when they were causing the car accident for the bad reason they were trying to hide cocaine than when they were trying to when they caused the accident for like a good reason um and what i've seen is you see the same thing not just for these attributions of responsibility to individual actors if you do something bad i'm going to say it's your fault if you do something good then i'm like eh, whatever <laughs> but i've seen that this also impacts what people re- will report about human free will in general so if I put you in the state where you're wanting to punish another person, you'll be more likely to assert that people have free will. And there's there's been another, um, I always forget these scholars' name. I think they're at Yale. But they've done some interesting follow-up work where they see that um, when people are wanting to punish other people, they're more like skeptical of genetic research, the idea that like genes contribute to people's behaviors. And I've looked at kind of similar things like um, people are more critical of research on automaticity or the idea that like a lot of unconscious things influence people's behavior. So they become more skeptical of science that's perceived as sort of like exonerating people <laughs> from responsibility when they want to punish other people. Um, uh, relative to when they're not wanting to punish their people. So the idea is that like part of our conception of the causes of human behavior um, can be influenced by 
how convenient it would be for me right now to be able to punish you and justifiably punish you and feel righteous in punishing you and tell other people that it was right that I punished you. Um, so, you know, we, we like to think that our understanding of human nature and the causes of human behavior is some kind of like scientifically grounded thing, or at least maybe philosophically grounded, I don't know, intuitively grounded. It's based on something. Um, and that it's a sort of consistent belief that we have, but it, that uh, appears not to be the case and people will turn it up or down uh, depending on... We, we did something similar in this addiction paper where we saw the opposite thing for the self. So people wrote about a time they engaged in some kind of like addictive or low self-control behavior and it caused something bad or nothing bad happened. So like an example would be I uh, went and gambled and I lost a ton of money and I couldn't buy my family groceries that week or I went and gambled and I broke even and everything was fine. Um, when people write about a time their actions caused something bad to happen, they say they had less free will themselves. So they turn down their own responsibility when they do something bad and they turn up other people's responsibility when other people do something bad. <laughs> Funny adjustment happening there. <laughs> convenient. Slightly convenient. It's a little convenient. Right. Huh. Right. That's where the motivation comes in and then... I see that in descriptions. That's I think that's quite common. Using the I see way too much of what I would call using words or descriptions of happenings to benefit oneself. Mm. I wonder about this sometimes. Uh, how much is like I've thought about the term acting. So what people are doing when they're like a press reporter and acting. Is that being more human or is that not because you're acting? By a press reporter, do you mean like... Like a person that... Your uh, own... Everything... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like um, making everything sound appropriate, fitting to what whatever you were doing, regardless of what was happening. It somehow just always neutralizes to a slightly positive direction forward regardless of what occurred, kind of like a strategic management of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. People, people try to manage their reputations in a lot of different ways, but so are you asking is, is that like more real or less real? Yeah. I wonder <laughs> is, is when, uh, I guess this is indirect, this is unrelated, but I've thought about this is acting so there's yourself, which is a tough one, but let's say there's yourself. And then beyond that, you do things to appear a certain way. Mm -hmm. Is that acting, which is acting like making up stuff, or is that acting like doing actions and that's what it is to be a human? Tough question right mm. there. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, like people behave more they're more generous toward other people when other people are watching. And so is it, which one is the true self? Is that the question? Something related to that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess both are. And, and in fact, the difference between those is the true self. The person is a person who behaves better when they're being watched than when they're not being watched. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, 
some people might say that the authentic version is what you do when no one's watching, but but humans are so, and our human psychology is so tied up with the social world. That's a good point. Yeah. What would a person, what would a human, I mean, there have been a couple cases of humans that were unfortunately like grew up in Isolated. isolation, right? <laughs> and those people seem to not do so well. <laughs> That's but true. you could say in some sense that's like the untainted human brain by social concerns. Um, although even there, the brain is tainted by like a lack of social uh, concerns, which the human brain is designed to deal with. So I don't even, I don't know. I don't hmm. know. I'm not sure no. I believe in like a true, a true self necessarily. That's a cool point. Is right. Like, because <laughs> I don't even is, know what it does, means. <laughs> what does it mean? To does that mean like it's uh, adaptive over time and constantly putting an effort to be like there was no, we're constantly have plasticity and there is no like base level requirement that you have to be that. Could that be related to that? Um, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Like uh, if we, like the, if there was no true self, it's because day by day we can adaptively alter in some form and we still have plasticity up until who knows how far, maybe not at the baseline because at age 25 or so we have developed most of our brain, but still changes are able to be made and we might represent ourselves with that. So now that is that our true self at that time? Uh, yeah, I think maybe the reason I... I don't necessarily find like the concept of true self even necessarily like a coherent concept is like things have to happen to a person or not happen to a person and those are going to they're not going to like fundamentally change well some things could fundamentally change a person like getting into a severe car accident I guess that like you suffer severe brain damage and it drastically alters like who you are I guess um but we're, we're, we're born a particular way with our parents and our genes and uh, we're going to be raised in a particular house and we're going to go to a particular school and we're going to meet certain people and, and everything that happens has some small impact on us. Um, and it's like, would you not be you if something different happened? Like if you chose to go to a different university, like which <laughs> then the change of the career and then it changed who you met and it changed who you married and it changed who your kids were like, they're both you. It's just you under like a different set of circumstances. So I don't, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, a human kind of is like the accumulation of their life experiences and without those life experiences, there are other life experiences, right? You can't just like pause a human. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm not thinking about, I mean, I know a lot of people think about the true self in a lot of different ways, but I think, um, I don't know. I think, I think it's kind of just like in something people want to have. This is like free will. Like it's something that feel like, I feel like I have a self and I feel like I'm choosing my thoughts and I feel like I'm generating my thoughts, but of course my thoughts have to come from something, uh, somewhere. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I'm not like wiring my brain up and like, <laughs> have this thought right now, get sad. 
<laughs> it's time to get to think this thing. <laughs> <laughs> you can try to do that, but it's often not very excess- successful if you try to like control your thoughts. And even then, something's causing you to want to control your thoughts. So, yeah, I don't know. It's like if we had a laptop screen and it was showcasing something and we had to keep taping stuff over the screen to keep replacing. No, it's that. No, it's that. <laughs> you have to keep taking it. You're like, it's not coming from the underneath. One thing that you mentioned right there, by the way, I find that super interesting as people, we have a full life of experiences that are, if you just take 10 of them already, it separates us from most people, but we don't have to just have 10. We have like, who knows, 80,000. We are each highly like... It's amazing how different the world of each person is. I know. In total, there can be no even close to similar in two people. There can be some similar qualities, but yeah, I, even I identical even twins. twins. Right. Yeah. <laughs> even identical twins who like you know, maybe stay in the same town and work similar jobs, they're going to have so many different experiences and meet so many different people and like once one of them marries someone, the other person can't marry that person. They have to marry someone else, and that changes who their kids are and what their kids do. And, although there, there is – I don't know. I've never, like, clicked on the story to follow up, but I do – I have seen a story on social media that says that this one set of identical twins married another set of identical twins. So those people might have more similar experiences than anyone else <laughs> in the whole world. And I think they, like, gave birth, like, in, like, a month apart or something ridiculous. <laughs> That will be possibly as close as it gets as far as yeah. people's time frame. I like looking at these things in detail. One closing item I would want to include on this one before a future one, hopefully, is mm-hmm. as... Can I be number uh, 500? Yes. I mean, that is <laughs> yeah, that leans in the darn right towards there. I don't know what number it'll be. We can't, if I could plan out everything, it'd be the same as taping the stuff on my laptop and making my existence just from taping it there. <laughs> This is that. Okay, I'll be happy there. And this is that is has that ever what a difficult existence. It would but for this one would be what is um what are uh if there is a couple of messages you are getting from current work or uh a topic of interest uh you are currently broadly exploring that you hope to get more insight into in coming time? Yeah, so the thing that I'm working on quite a bit right now that I've not published on much or maybe even at all before is uh, censorship and self-censorship. So I conducted this study with around 500 psychology professors where I looked at what empirical conclusions they believe are off limits in the sense that if you were to mention supporting empirical evidence for one of these conclusions, you would get punished for it. Um, And then I looked at how much people self-censor their own beliefs and how much they want to punish other people who report conclusions they don't like and stuff like that. Um, And we see a lot of really interesting things like probably the thing that I find most interesting is that people who believe these like off-limits conclusions are empirically accurate, are far more likely to self-censor their own beliefs in, you know, professional and public conversations about these topics. So like at a conference, for example, which means that 
our public perception of empirical reality within this is in psychology, so I'll just say within psychology, but it's probably true in all disciplines, I'd have to imagine, that our public perception of scientific consensus will always be systematically biased toward rejecting the controversial conclusions and biased in favor of accepting more socially desirable conclusions as true. Uh, and this, I think... What I'm hoping is that by showing people that this is true and then also showing – so one thing I also see is that scholars are very terrified of their peers in the public. They're very afraid of getting denounced on Twitter or of being called a mean name or of being disliked by their peer colleagues. They're very, very, very afraid of this. Um, but very, very few scholars think any of those kinds of things are warranted. They think it's not appropriate to attack people in social media. They think we sh like it's not within the realm of science that we should be calling each other names or, um, you know, playground stuff. <laughs> uh, and so I think what's happening is we have like a vocal minority of scholars who have created the impression that these kinds of like ad hominem attacks are appropriate and they're causing everyone else to be scared but everyone else thinks they're the ones that are causing the problems <laughs> so i'm hoping that by showing this to people that it's the people who are like trying to cancel other people and calling people names those are the ones that everyone hates it's not the people that are getting canceled that everyone hates um and this can be hard to see because like on twitter you only see the people who are piling on you don't see the people who aren't piling on you don't see the people who saw it and said nothing because they were too scared themselves and they didn't want to put a target on their own back. And I think that's the vast majority of people. Um, so I'm hoping by like showing people that this is the case, then people will feel a little bit more courage about speaking up for, if not for like their empirical beliefs, then at least for defending the right of other people to share empirical <laughs> beliefs, right? Uh, and say, when that happens, criticize the idea, not the person. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> That's a fascinating topic. And I have to add in this one because it made me think of it just to toss it in. In the category of fear, I've always thought that uh, fear from others can only come or uh, attach to you if there's some fear in you to attach to. Like, it's like a Velcro. So if you don't have fear on your end, the fear just kind of bounces off until they find somebody that has some fear to attach to in some way. Do you think there's something to this idea? Yeah, there probably is. Um, I think there are a couple things. Like, one is people, there two, I think there are two things. People want to uh, attack people who are perceived to have status because they want to take high status people down and make room for themselves to climb in the social ladder. But people also want to attack people who are vulnerable. Um, and so if you're the kind of person who appears like you could be taken down by something, well, people will be more likely to try to take you down. Um, and so, yeah, I think having a, a thick skin and publicly showing that you're unfazed by people attacking you can help minimize attacks against you. The hard thing is now people don't just go for your reputation, they go for your career. And even if you're like 
it's okay if people, if some people hate me. Like, I know a lot of people respect me. Some people are going to hate me. That's what happens if you're going to be like sharing information with the world or doing interesting things. Um, but now, even if you can withstand like a certain level of potential like reputational cost or ostracism, people can persuade your employer to fire you. <laughs> so you're still vulnerable. Uh, it's a little bit different in academia because tenure is supposed to protect people from that, but it doesn't all the time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think probably there are very few humans in the world that aren't phased by some level of ostracism or reputational damage, you know. Like some of these universities will like denounce one of their professors and it's hard to imagine a person being like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> They said they hate me. <laughs> Casually. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But I, I, I agree with your point. Like, I, I do think, you know, if you if you can care less, then people will attack you less. But you're only, you know, so safe at any, at any given moment. So, I don't know. Quality of character there. That's an interesting one. On this one here, I would like to say... Dr. Corey Clark, I have enjoyed speaking with you once again, covering a variety of topics, including adversarial collaborations, victimhood for resources, and motivated free will belief, and also a variety of items as well. It's very enjoyable for me. I'm glad to have had you on this episode of the show. Thanks for having me. I had a great time, too. It was great. Yay!